it takes code sometimes up to a year to hit production. A healthy retro is you're going to talk about some of the successes, some of the fun things that have happened that week. You're going to talk about some of the things that like bothered people. I'm a big fan of talking about feelings at work. Yeah, it just goes to show that like there's no one answer to anything. That's one of the things that I love about working on developer tooling, though, is that like it kind of makes it your job to fail, so then your customers don't have to fail. Hi, I'm Liz Fung Jones. And I'm Charity Majors. And you're listening to Observability Cast, a monthly series about the art and science of making production systems observable, easy to maintain, and appropriately reliable. Ollicast is brought to you by Heavybit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you have a specific topic you'd like us to dive into, you can reach us on Twitter at Ollicast. That's O-11-Y-C-A-S-T, Ollicast. So you've been at one company for a while. How many teams have you been on? So I've been at Pivotal for about four years now, and I've been on nine teams. Uh, nine teams? Nine teams, yeah. I probably hold the record for most teams uh, in, Ever? in four years, <laughs> uh, but it's not unusual. I think most people who've been here f- four years have been on three or four teams. So you have a culture of team switching internally. Yeah, yeah we, we try to de-silo. We try to have That's high bus so numbers. And, yeah, and it's yeah. not that foreign to me because yeah. I served on something like 10 teams in 11 years at Google. So it really depends upon how your team is set up and how your organization is set up. What do you think you two have in common? I think that when you seek out kind of growth opportunities, when you start saying like, hey, I'm feeling comfortable, right? Make yourself not comfortable again. Oh yeah, I hate that. I get bored and then I start looking for ways to entertain myself and nobody likes that. (laughs) Nobody. (laughs) Nat, this sounds like a great time for you to introduce yourself. Hey, I'm Nat Bennett. I'm a software engineer at Pivotal. What do you work on at Pivotal? I work on Cloud Foundry. So those nine teams have all been different Cloud Foundry component teams or release engineering teams. My number's a little bit inflated because the first team that I was on was a one-pair team testing the high availability features of Cloud Foundry during the 1.4 to 1.5 upgrade, I think. So we just spent like six weeks messing around with Gatling and looking at which parts of it go down when so you're upgrading. So what's kind of the difference to you between a project and a team? So in the pivotal context, like a team is a group of engineers who are all pairing with each other and are rotating on a daily or weekly basis. We have tried to do project teams. They always turn into like long-term things. I feel like the career trajectory of a build engineer is not really well understood. What does one do? So the team right now is split into two pieces. We take input from all the other teams. Uh, they're like pushing artifacts. Artifacts, uh, yeah, into our system and then running it through a pretty massive series of build pipelines that are running a bunch of different tests. Fresh deploy, upgrade deploy, deploys across a bunch of different IaaSes. Own the code all the way from the time that it's committed until it's deployed to users. Uh, what do you mean by own the code? Are you the one who says whether it goes or gets bounced back? Kind of. Usually, if it gets bounced back, what we'll do is like open up a cross-team pair and try to figure out what's going on and what's wrong. How many developers would you say that your team of release engineers supports? 100, 200. I know that the Cloud Foundry development organization is about 400 engineers. And how many of you are there? (laughs) There are 15 total if you count both the open source and the closed source release engineering. You have a different problem than a lot of people have, right? In that you're not just releasing something that you run in your own production environment. You have to 
build things that other people can just take and run, right? Yeah. It takes code sometimes up to a year to hit production, real production, like customers running into production because we have a quarterly release cycle. So that's going to take like often at least three months between somebody writing code and it getting shipped. And then our customers are mostly large enterprises. Big banks, often conservative uh, types. Yeah, well, they've you know there's there's a lot of risk. They're handling millions of people's I money. I would like huh. them to be conservative with my money. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Huh. So how do you build confidence then? Right. You know, we talk about the idea of shipping as lifeblood of being able to test things early. How do you test things at Pivotal? And how do you maintain that that sense of the lifeblood of your the urgency? You know, shipping things like if you're if you only have a release once a quarter, do you have internal releases or things that kind of like create a more regular cadence for people to ship regularly? Yeah, so one thing is that we have a couple of sources of internal feedback. If you've used Pivotal Tracker, mm-hmm. you're using an application that's running on a so dog food. PCF, yeah, that's um, the EU operations team. Hi, James. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, runs that and gives a lot of feedback. Like They do things, uh, provides a lot of feedback about things like uh, how long upgrades take, for yeah. instance, which is something that it's hard to get. We also... We're just now firing up uh, and starting to get feedback from this thing called Telemetry and Insights, where we're getting stats back from customer Ooh, sites. Uh, in the wild. Yeah, so now we're able to see things like what versions are people actually oh running God, in dev versus that right? Like sources of truth from production, yeah. right? Like it's amazing when you get them. We found Ooh, out some why? of the settings that people always change and yeah. some of the settings that people never change. Oh my God. Uh, I think that it's really fascinating to think about. So, how do we observe our production systems, right? And for you, to an extent, your production systems are the end product, but also Other you people's. are a build engineer, right? Like you have production systems too. What are your production yeah. systems like then? Concourse. Uh, yeah. I keep hearing about this. <laughs> Funnily enough, I was pairing with a bunch of people over at Meetup a while ago, and they use Concourse because they're staffed by a whole bunch of ex pivotal people. Huh. Nice. Yeah, we uh, we go places and uh-huh. do things. <laughs> sort of absorb people into the hive mind. Uh, so Concourse is a continuous integration system. It's really a. I just picked this up yesterday. Continuous verification. It's a continuous thing doer, and it lets us build these gigantic pipelines and control what versions of things are moving through it and what tests versions of things have to have passed before they move into the next stage. Uh, and they let us orchestrate these, like, deploy across a bunch of different scenarios, run tests, tear down. Nice. So how long is a typical concourse pipeline for you? You're probably one of the more sophisticated users, but... Yeah. So for release engineering, it takes, if nothing goes wrong, it takes about two days to run an artifact through our pipelines. Wow. So the amazing thing about build engineering that I've always been fascinated by is the way that you touch everything and everyone, mm-hmm. right? Maybe this like feeds your, your, your itch to jump teams a little bit. I don't know. But the flip side of that is your mistakes affect everyone. How do you keep that from being paralyzing? Uh, Semver. What's that? Semantic versioning. I mean, that's a little bit of oh. a flip answer, but like, for instance... Has uh, this been an evolution across your career, too? Like, I would love it if you can speak to like the ways that like senior Nat is like, oh, junior Nat, here's where you're going. 
Oh yeah, uh, senior nat's a lot more chill than junior nat. Like that's a lot. <laughs> what do you mean by more chill? Right? Like, is it in terms of perfection is not a name, or is it in terms of kind of being battle hardened? Right? Like everything will get fixed. Yeah. Well, junior nat was like, we're doing these things wrong, and I don't understand why. And why are you doing it this way? What's wrong oh, with you? And that's adorable. <laughs> senior, somewhat senior nat is more like. Interesting. Tell me more about what this does for you. Uh, Have you considered trying this instead? Uh, Yeah, I remember making that mistake when I switched on to the team that was the former ITA software team in Boston. And I was like, you are doing SRE wrong. Here are the five things you're doing wrong. Like, I literally said that the first two weeks I was on that team, and they never listened to me again. How to win friends and influence people. Yeah, Yeah, you got to spend the the first two weeks on a new team, like, just asking people, why do you do it this way? Like, what does this do for you? I've seen in my, you know, I like doing it this way, or I've had this experience, or like, uh, this has worked out badly for me in the past, but like, you're doing it, so why? Like, yeah. what is right? that doing for you? And then kind you? of figuring out how do we pair with people, right? Like, whether mm-hmm. you're an SRE like me or whether you're a build engineer like you, Nat, like, we kind of have to figure out how we partner with people because we can't do everything by ourselves. And SREs and build engineers are tightly, like, very coupled. Like, it's before prod and after prod, but they're the same skill sets and often the same processes and tools and mindsets. Yeah, at one point, I rolled from another one of our dog fooding teams, one of our production teams, onto the open source release integration team and spent a lot of time going like, oh, this is what operators think of this, or this is what operators think of that. Which it's a really uh, valuable thing to learn. It's so valuable to rotate around, right? Like, that, mm-hmm. I think, besides the I get bored itch, it's also the I want to better understand someone else's situation itch. Yeah. yeah. I've noticed in you, Liz, is that you have this incredible ability to jump into any situation and just size it up immediately. This is clearly a skill set in and of itself, right? I take a while to to acclimate to new environments because I have not made a practice of that. And it's been interesting to watch you just like sail in customer. All right, you know, here's the top three things, but very nicely, right? It's, it's, it's yeah, a learning skill. to do it nicely is important. What was yes. that expression you used the other week with involving like a velociraptor? Oh yes, Liz is a velociraptor. She just enters the room, sizes up the flows of information and how to position herself to be in the route of as much as possible without annoying anyone. Something like that. Yeah, ramping up is definitely a skill. Uh, yeah. Can we swear on this? Uh, yes, yes, absolutely. It's fucking charity really. fucking majors. Of course you can swear. <laughs> on the last couple of rotations, uh, uh, I keep a what the fuck notebook, which is a big part of how I stay chill, is yes. I just sort of have a running log of like everything that makes me go, what the fuck? Okay, it's going into the notebook. Uh, <laughs> and then later I'll either like figure out why or I'll fix it. And yeah. I have this list of stuff that I'm going to fix. So. so what are the most common WTFs you encounter and what are the most common things that you tend to do when you first join a team, right? We're kind of talking about that onboarding. How do you make that smoother yourself, Nat? Often it's stuff that's like flaky builds or workstation setup that's not quite right or... I think that I will often notice is the amount of pain that people will subject just themselves tolerate. to yeah. without noticing. Mm-hmm. Just like over and over. Yeah, because mm-hmm. it creeps up on you over time. And you're just like, oh yeah, that thing that I manually do every morning before I can do anything, it's fine. Yeah. Yeah, I kind of want to plug some of my friends at a startup called Windmill developing a tool called Tilt. And the goal of Tilt is oh. to make it one command to stand up your entire uh, oh, Dockerified God. or Kubernetesified development environment 
environment, have all your logs piped to one place so you can see what's going on, what's failing, right? Like, it shouldn't have to be like this pipeline of manual steps you run to provision your dev what environments. A great name yeah. <laughs> we, yeah. We're kind of obsessive at Pivotal about having like standardized ways to do that kind of setup. So, question. If you were popped into some hypothetical place, new job, you have access to none of the internal Pivotal tools. No Bosch. No Bosch. No Concourse. We're talking to the rest of the world here. No Bosch, no Concourse. (laughs) Um, I mean, you could probably set up Concourse from scratch. If you have to go do it from scratch, you can. But like most people don't know what those things are. Right. Um, Imagine you're flying in to help some team. Obama for America, like, need your sure. help to fix your bill. What kinds of things do you look for? Like, you've got to see, like, common, like, problems and have, like, a repertoire of fixes. But, like, what I'm getting at is there are so many people out there who have, like, a lot of developers, no dedicated build engineers, and it's so bad that they don't know where to start. Like, what advice would you give them? Ooh. I mean, that's so I kind of walked into a system that was mostly running. The history of build engineering at Pivotal is kind of fascinating. Let me Um, start with a thing. It takes an hour and a half for them to play code. Sure. Yeah. Is that acceptable? It depends people. on what kind of code it is, but probably right? like not. Like the answer, uh, like I de- it depends, right? It depends. Is a common right? It's the same thing with service level objectives, right? Like how do you Absolutely. know whether three thousand milliseconds is okay or Which not? Which is kind right? of why I'm asking. Like, what questions do you start asking, and what kind of answers do you start looking for to steer you? If you get ten questions to like determine your next two weeks of work, like, yeah. What? I mean, the first thing that I'm going to start with is just checking whether or not they're having retros, Ooh. and then are they. Actually, identifying real problems in the retro and, and, and talk ways about a to change retro. it. Yeah, a healthy retro is you're going to talk about some of the successes, some of the fun things that have happened that week. You're going to talk about some of the things that like bothered people. I'm a big fan of talking about feelings at work. Yeah. Mm, I love how the first thing that you jump to, to is not tools, but instead culture. I love that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, people like organizations are the most interesting distributed system that I have access to. So, yeah, junior engineers are always like, ugh, stupid feelings. And senior engineers are just like, always go straight to the people. It's all feelings. Uh, it's all feelings. Um, okay. So, you st- set up people with retros, they start talking about issues. What do you do next? Probably look at can you set up the real software, an actual, if it's a distributed system, an actual distributed system, not like some single node baby version of it, but the real software. Can you do that with a single command so, or a couple of commands? So like, can you actually bring the software up, play with it, test it? Because I've been on teams that, for instance, I rolled on a team once that was having a heck of a time replicating a customer problem where the customer problem was like every week, like clockwork, we turn this thing off and then we turn it back on again and it doesn't work. And the team was like, this is impossible. We can't replicate this. Why are they doing this? And I rolled on and I was like, I, I have some bad news for you about the cloud uh, <laughs> and what it does. Uh, right. <laughs> so you kind of have to get things to a repeatable state, right? Yeah. They couldn't replicate the problem, even though it was a pretty simple problem, because they couldn't deploy the software. <laughs> So you, they they did all of their testing on a single node right. like Dockerized version of it. So you have to be able right. to deploy the real software and get feedback, and then like kind of looking at what is your deploy cycle like? What's your minimum time to real feedback pr- from production? Mm-hmm. And then what other sources of feedback are you getting? Like pairing, we're obsessed about pairing at Pivotal because that's the fastest possible way that you can get immediate feedback. Mm-hmm. It's interesting you, that you go so quickly to, you have to be able to stand up a system that looks like production, I assume you mean hardware like instances, like as production-like as possible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I often, and I'm taking a somewhat maximal stance that I don't 
100% agree with myself here, but I will often be like, you know, most what you need is prod, well instrumented that you can, you know, understand, explain, you know, really complex questions, and your laptop. And that's mostly what you need because most problems that I've seen, um, you can spend a lot of time trying to find them in staging. You may or may not find them because the conditions may or may not exist, but they will always exist in prod. And often, like you'll start looking for problems, you'll find different ones in staging than exist in prod. Yeah. So I think that like you run the basics on your laptop, which you know is not prod, so you don't have to like blur the lines in your head. A lot of developers start thinking that staging is prod and it's not. Right, exactly. It's kind of this interesting oh. thing. Like I remember this old XKCD comic, right? You know, someone's like, oh, my code's compiling. And then the manager goes, like, okay, right? Like, and it's like, no, right? Like, you Ship know, you staging. should, right? Like, you should make yeah. your own local build blazing fast so you can yes. write a line of code and having it, have it running in five or 10 seconds, right? Yes. But then you have to also make sure that you can deploy that code to production with a fast oh, cycle. And yeah. stand it and look at it and like, yeah. So that's actually maybe the actual pl- first place that I would start is can you run your tests locally? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a really great, <laughs> great starting point. Mm-hmm. Um, you're seeing some of my bias there of like, I've been working with package software no, that you ship, sure. right? Sure. Uh, but also, I think you should actually be able to understand how your software behaves. Developers so. should be able to tear down their environment and get started again from scratch and like yeah. very But quickly. also that, right? Like, in the new maturity model that Charity and I developed, right, like it's, we think it's important to use the same tools to observe yes. your production environment and your local development environment, right? Like if you're not testing with the same telemetry, right, if you're leaning on looking at local verbose logs on your local laptop, you're going to have a hell of a time figuring out what's going on when it hits right. production because yeah. you can't look at all those logs. Yeah. Or it's inordinately expensive. We actually tore down the staging environment while I was on the cloud ops team. It was named Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Because uh, it was actually a sandbox. It was like a playing environment for the ops team. Uh, uh, no, Maybe. I don't. No, I don't think so. <laughs> but we gotten into a point where we updated the staging environment most of the time after we updated production. Right. I've seen this too. <laughs> so I think that staging, honestly, it's most. And there are some problems where yes, you can you know you can go prod. It's going to be destructive. It deals with deep data things that I can't mess with. Like there are cases. Or you absolutely need a staging environment. And configuration problems. Like configuration we're actually problems. probably going to set uh, a staging environment back up because most of our like yeah. most of our outages over the past year have been configuration issues that yeah. would have been caught by a really yes. simple Rolling just like config. smoke yes, test really deploy. Yeah. Smoke tests, exactly. Yeah. And I think also for smoke tests, right, like it's important that they be relatively high signal to noise, right? Yes. Like I think high yes. signal to noise, but also not so critical that you're going to be yes. screaming if it breaks, right? Like this is the beauty of what we wind up doing at Honeycomb with kind of our dog food environment ingesting yeah. the telemetry from our production environment. Dog food, we use it constantly. Mm-hmm. Because it's how we understand the customers' honeycombs. We right, honeycomb but in. if it yeah. breaks, right? You know, no end customers are affected. Exactly. It just impairs our, our own ability I'm to a see. Huge fan of every form and flavor of dog fooding or like yeah. trying things on yourself first. The dog fooding can also lead you astray if you're really different from the customers. For instance, Cloud Foundry engineers, like developers who are working on the thing. We install and deploy it way more than any customer ever does. Like the vast majority, probably 99% of the times that a Cloud Foundry gets stood up, it's at Pivotal or at another Cloud Foundation member developing it. And we have gotten 
newer engineers will get frustrated with uh, various rough edges on that experience, yeah. so, which is legitimate. You know, it's like the missing stair, off, right? Uh, Everyone knows don't step there except yeah. for the new engineer, right? So you really need kind of that user experience right. viewpoint. Yeah. Yeah. But it's also not, you know, that's something that a customer is going to do once. The thing that's actually really important for customers is upgrades, uh, mm, which, which we never do. do. Yeah, 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 uh, or if you do do upgrades, they're much more incremental. They're not yeah. big bang. Yeah. 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 yeah, You're never yeah. going from V1 to V10. Right. We also have things like the operations team in San Francisco sits right next to the Bosch team, sits right next to the API team. Right. Um, if something goes wrong, they can just go tap somebody on the shoulder and have the you know, hot patch the Bosch director uh, yeah. uh, if they need to. And totally. customers can't do that, so we it causes us to not notice some things uh, that are frustrating about operating yeah. our product. Uh, yeah, it just goes to show that like you know, there is no... <laughs> One answer to anything. The the one thing about staging that we use it for is is for the UI stuff, so that you can you know deploy if you're working on the UI and the UX and stuff. Like you, putting it on your laptop is not going to give you the right experience. Whereas but it's not even staging, right? Like for us, it is a window into real production yeah. data, right? It's just running a different binary, right? So it's not in the critical customer. We do technically path, have a staging that is separate from dog food. Not anymore. We don't? Not no, anymore. No, I, no, I actually have anymore. a change list out to delete all the remnants of it. That's <laughs> how so much I know. Right, we are staging free. <laughs> how much yeah. do you love deleting things, oh Liz? My <laughs> oh my God, it's oh, the best. <laughs> so I wanted to talk a little bit more about the, you mentioned it takes two days to run your build pipeline from start to end. How do you, you said, and that's if it goes well, how do you diagnose when things go badly? Oh, <laughs> and not only go badly, right? Like you know, go badly doesn't necessarily mean you know a hundred percent errors, right? Like how do you debug flakiness? How do you debug slowness? Right? Yeah, how do you just, not have these things sneak mean? up? <laughs> so I could talk about that for a couple of hours, probably, sure. but I'll try to give you the short version. Usually, something going wrong is a failed deploy or a failed test run. Sometimes it is a concourse failure, an underlying concourse failure, because we run probably one of the biggest concourses that exists, so we're driving it pretty hard and we get all kinds of nice scaling feedback for them. So sometimes the worker fails, sometimes it's a flaky test, sometimes yeah. it actually is bad code. Yeah, there may be bad configuration, there may be a problem, there may be an actual integration problem, Are like two versions clear? don't work. Nah, okay. um, there will be a failure, and we're we're working on making this more clear. We actually have a process. Uh, we have playbooks. Uh, you can roll a new engineer onto PaaS release engineering and have them running yeah, what we call a release about, train. Like, this category of problem, like we've seen this with a lot of our customers, Circle and, and whatnot, is yeah. that it's like Tolstoy said: every success looks the same, every failure is different. It's yeah. in its own special way. So we do try to, like during a train, we'll have one person leading the whole process, and when there are failures, we will pull those and record them and try to group them. We're actually, we've got one of our engineers, Carlos, is working on a tool that pulls information from the Concourse API, Pipestat. Do you do a single run per merge or per commit? No. Um, We do tend to batch things, which causes... uh, because there is that certain minimum fixed cost of running the pipelines, and I'm always the person going like, "What if we put fewer things into this batch?" Like we is had it a, not we had one go. Is it possible to make it faster? We have made it faster. Like it used to take longer. Basically, mm-hmm. we have made it faster by reducing the amount of testing that we're doing. Was that the only way? 
I think that's really cool, actually, to think about, right? Like, you know, why do we, when we write a test, does it have to stick around forever, right? The right. ROI of testing yeah. is very interesting. Yeah. yeah, that's kind of one of my perpetual conversations that I'm having with people with like, yeah, I understand this is valuable, but is it worth it? Like, is it valuable enough to be worth the cost? And that's mm. and how do like you measure the, the cost? Right? How to, do you figure out which ones you're going to go after and say, is this really worth it or can I optimize it? Like, what do you do for that? So for tests specifically, huh? I'm glad you asked that. I was really interested in this question, and we use Ginkgo for most of our testing, Go testing, and Ginkgo has reporters. And so we wrote a honeycomb reporter that every time a test runs, it'll report, you know, did it pass or fail? What line did it fail on if it failed? How long did it take? And so, for instance, when we're dealing with super flaky tests, we now can use that, any Ginkgo suite, basically, we can hook it up and get sort of a rank-ordered list of the tests that have failed the most in the last 30 days or whatever it is. Oh, nice. So it's kind of the way to identify the low-hanging fruit, what's failing the most often or what's taking the most time. Interesting. And that's the main way that we've been able to use Honeycomb so far. But that's something that I, in general, I would like to... I've been exploring a couple of different ways to instrument more of our concourse pipelines I with mean, Honeycomb. I'm curious, like what what you guys use for observability and build pipelines? Yeah, and because this is not something I had ever really thought about. Like I always think of you know observability for production, and our customers keep dragging us over towards being like, no, no, no. But like we can visualize our build pipeline as a waterfall using tracing. Like Intercom, I think was the first to like instrument their build pipeline and drop their entire deploy from commit till. It's in prod to four and a half minutes using Ruby on Rails. Wow. I know. Like I'm and it's just those little things, right? Like figuring mm-hmm. out what is the what's the distribution of latencies for this particular yep. span type, right? Yeah. Like I'm it's so kind of, blown away by that. And like like all of the advanced teams, like almost all of them tend to come back to us eventually and go, Oh hey, we're using honeycomb for our build pipeline, which is not something I ever would have predicted. Yeah. Yeah. I mean you have to start with measuring it, because otherwise you're just sort of like Throwing darts in the dark. It's all a high cardinality problem. Right. It is a high cardinality problem, but it is not that expensive of a problem, right? Like the amount of data that's produced relative to the cost to run your tests in a VM, right? That's tiny. Yeah, it totally is. Several times in the last couple of months, I've had a team come to me and was like, they have flaky tests. They heard that I have something for it. I'm like, here, get set up with this. It's very exciting. And then they come back and they're like, how much does this cost? Like, is this going to be okay? And I'm like, $70 $70 a month. Uh, uh, you're not going to use even all of that. And they're like, how do we make this more efficient? And I'm like, have you actually, just like check how much you're paying for it right yeah. now. Check how much data that they're that you're using. And they're like, oh, it's like less than a gigabyte. I'm like, yeah, it's less than, it's very small. Yeah. Very, very small. <laughs> yeah, actually checking first before you start optimizing. It makes just a huge difference. Yes, yes, premature optimization is the worst. That's yeah, true. I, I find that um, a lot of co- companies also the thing is that they instrument to look for the answer to one question, mm-hmm. and then once they pick up the rock, they're like, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Look what lives under there. And it's just thing after thing after thing. And sometimes they blame us. They're like, oh man, until you had honeycomb, we did not know. And I'm like, well, it was your customers knew, like your users knew. Yeah. <laughs> I came out of, I started as a software tester, as an exploratory tester, and testers will talk about, you know, breaking the system. Testers don't break the system. Yeah. Uh, testers reveal, <laughs> right? Like software is just always broken. Yes. None of it works. Always uh, broken. Right, but at the same time, it's kind of our obligation as software engineers to think about which groups of people are worst affected by the breakages in our software, right? Is it yes. concentrated on one user, right? Or is it evenly spread out? It's almost yeah. never evenly spread a out. A spike yeah. is a spike. And then like 
you don't know until you start disaggregating it. Is it everyone who's impacted more or less evenly? Almost certainly not. Is it 10% of users who are like completely locked out? Is it like you don't know? This is what bugs me about dashboards. This is why I hate dashboards. Though there's a spike and people just assume that they know what it is because they've seen something before that looks like it and it's too hard and expensive to actually go figure out for sure because you have to jump into logs and like all this detailed shit. Or you could use Honeycomb. <laughs> I have this problem where once I understand that a problem is solvable, not yeah. even solved, just solvable, I get bored immediately and I'm like, well, somebody else can do that. I figured uh, it out. <laughs> which is why I gravitate towards people problems, basically. But it's also why I've been really attracted, to, why I have been attracted to Honeycomb and similar tools that let you collect information for problems you didn't even know that you had necessarily. Well, and you started out as a tester. Yeah. And like the workflow, yeah. when I was trying to figure out how, how the fuck to describe what we were doing right mm-hmm. before I landed on observability, one of the things that I was playing with was BI for systems. Because mm-hmm. in BI, in business intelligence, they never would have been satisfied with, here are a dozen dashboards. Now, whenever you have something happening in your business, just fit them to one of these, or worst case scenario, we'll make a new dashboard to describe that. Because every scenario is so specific and so unique. And so new, and you need to like take one small step, look at the answer, and then based on the answer, take another small step and like follow the breadcrumbs to the specific answer every time. Right. The answer to can our system answer this question shouldn't either be yes or no. It should be you know, How it far? might take us you know a minute to figure out. It might take us ten minutes to figure out. It might even heaven forbid take half an hour to figure out. Right. But you know, never should the answer be, be like we can't do that, right? Or revert to SSHing and an S tracing your binary is a thing that I used to do all the time at Parse. So how often do you have to go and look at individual concourse workers? I have a confession to make. Uh, um, I've been spending the last couple of weeks deep in manager leveling, so I haven't been like hands on uh, with uh, the software in in a little bit, but not. I don't know, once a week at most. Riding a bicycle. See, the thing is, anytime you have to do that, you know in your heart that you failed in some way. Anytime you have to look, if you have to go tr- trace it all the way down to the end, well, this is how I used to feel like. Yeah. If I had to SSH into a machine and look at some log or some state in the machine, it meant, and it's not a catastrophic failure, but it just means that my tools have failed to answer my questions your at a higher level. Or your instrumentation, right? Sometimes yes. the onus is on you to instrument, and yes. the way you get that signal is, am I having to do manual work too often? Yes. That's kind of what's great. That's one of the things that I love about working on developer tooling, though, yeah. is that like it kind of makes it your job to fail, so then your customers mm-hmm. don't have to fail. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and like every time you you do some debugging, that's like, well, this was really hard. Then you're like, how can we make this easier for the operator? And you're never just solving for one. You're mm-hmm. solving a category problem, and I enjoy that. So as we reach the kind of end of our time here, are there any kind of closing thoughts that you wanted so to talk about? I wanted to. So you mentioned briefly just now being a manager. Yeah. Yeah. Would you like to talk about the career arc? of someone who identifies as a build engineer or release engineer. Because I don't think that people really understand that as a career. Yeah, so I think in my context, it's something that often people will come into for a year, year and a half, two years, and then go back to another team. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What do you think of that? I think that's good. I think that's healthy. Yeah. Um, you, we need people who understand the system yeah. on the release that's a team. Great way to do that. It's the same way that I love to talk to people about. Hey, you should do a site reliability yeah. engineering rotation. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. But I also think that this is kind of a 
there's a handful of us who think this is kind of an emerging yeah. speciality, an oh, emerging good. kind of area, um, and this. are <laughs> kind of interested in how do we take this and make it a career? Like, what does that look is like? Is there a community or a group or someplace that people who are interested in this can join and find out more or anything? Oh gosh, uh, there's one. not yet, but there probably should be. There should is there is one. one internal pivotal, but yeah, we should start we should make, uh, we should a yeah, kind of having that to, idea of a common community of practice, right? Yeah, yeah. Or even right, like things sometimes get started with O'Reilly books, right? Mm-hmm. Like you know, where is the O'Reilly book for the modern release modern engineering? Release engineering. Our anchors thinking about writing it. Uh, well, you know what? If you decide to create a group or something, we'll happily tack it on to the end of the show when we publish it. That would be great. Yeah. Can I rant for a second about spreadsheets? Yes, please. Uh, yes. <laughs> so we touched a little bit on people trying to fix things without measuring at all, huh? and you just end up <laughs> fixing a little bit here uh-huh. and there, and you never make traction on like the real Cut problem. Your so off by accident. And we talked a little bit about you know making it easy for people to measure, like it's good to measure. The real reason that I love Honeycomb, the real reason that I wrote this Ginkgo reporter, was to rescue people from dumping data into spreadsheets that they never look at. Because often when people have flaky tests, they start collecting data data by hand in a spreadsheet. (gasps) I'm sad now. I don't even care if you never look at the automatically collected data. Just don't be spending hours of engineer time a week. Uh, Right? It's like, you know, would you rather invest in the right tools or would you rather waste a bunch of your engineer's time on inadequate solutions? Well, and it's so much better. Like, I, I was taught by my first engineering manager, basically, like, it's better to do things in a way that's a little bit slower to start with but lets you, you know, have fun, that lets you write code. Mm-hmm. Huh? than it is to do something like painful and boring and not learn anything. No, no that's true. I have seen people, now that you mentioned, I've seen people on their laptops spin up a copy of, not my sequel, but the uh, Microsoft version of that. MS SQL. MS SQL and dump in telemetry data and start yeah. shifting through it. It's yeah. equally sad. And you can't take that too far. Like, there's definitely premature optimization, all that. But, yeah. like, right, like sure. is, it, is it prototyping? Or are you actually yes. making this load-bearing, right? If it's right. load-bearing, yes. you need to consider Oof. it appropriately. Yeah, but you want to always be learning, and you want to make it like really easy to collect the data that you need, because otherwise you're not going to change what data you're collecting. If you need it at once, you're going right. to need it again. Right, so, mm, and I love that idea, right, of having your instrumentation never be a fixed thing, right? Having right. your testing coverage yeah. never be a fixed yeah. thing. I love yeah. that idea, right? Yeah. Like continuous process. Yeah, I can go in, you know, we started collecting information on the acceptance tests, and then I was like, oh, we kind of want to have the version of the CLI that generated this. And that was 30 minutes, 15 minutes, and a line of bash. And most nice. of the bash was, most bash of the 15 the minutes, most of the 15 minutes was learning yeah. how to write the bash, and then I learned that <laughs> forever. Uh, no, you didn't. Right, like how easy, <laughs> how that easy is piece. it to add a new column to your data? Right? right, yeah, yeah. And once you get it started, if you just sort of like build yeah. things up over time. Uh, Thank you for being here, Nat. It was a wonderful conversation. Thanks for joining us for this conversation. If you're interested in being a guest on a future show, or if you have a specific topic you'd like us to dive into, you can reach us on Twitter at OllieCast. That's O-1-1-Y-Cast. To learn more about HeavyBit, visit heavybit.com. And while you're there, check out their library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tool companies and other industry leaders. Hope to see you next time.